Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, as I come to handle your word this morning, I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon me, uh, that you would take this scripture, which in many ways is very difficult for us to, to understand and maybe even to hear, and you would show your gospel through it. Lord, I pray uh, that you would give us, as the people of God gathered in worship, ears to hear and hearts receptive to receive, ready to receive the truth of the scriptures. Lord, I thank you that you always promise to be strong in our weakness. So come now and be strong in my weakness as the preacher of the word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, you need to know that we're in a series on Paul's first letter to his young lieutenant, or his young Padawan, as you might prefer to call him, uh, his young lieutenant, Timothy, called Keeping Christianity Weird, Keeping Christianity Weird. And we took that series title from the fact that authentic Christian faith and practice, which is rooted in Holy Scripture and the teaching of the apostles, is always going to seem weird and out of step with an unbelieving world. The Scripture, a life lived according to the Scriptures and the teaching of the apostles is always going to seem weird and out of step to an unbelieving world. And that has certainly become the case for us in the United States over the last few years. To genuinely live for Jesus Christ is necessarily going to, be pl to place us outside of the mainstream of our own culture in many, many ways. But I want you to hear good news in that. That's not something that we should wring our hands over or, or be, uh, uh, I don't know, downcast about. No, it really is good news because the church will be far more relevant and far more effective in reaching our culture precisely because the differences between the church and the world have now become so distinct and so sharp. We actually are in a position where we can be more effective and more relevant. And that's exactly what Russell Moore, who is the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, says in a recent interview with Christianity Today, he said, we, the church, we are a prophetic minority who must speak into a world that is exactly what Jesus promised the world must be. In other words, we're speaking into an unbelieving world as a prophetic minority, and we now are positioned to have a real impact. Now, if I was going to point out one passage, any one passage in 1 Timothy in particular, that would make Christianity sound weird to our secular culture, and I don't mean in a good way, it would be what we just read out of 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I know that it sounds weird to the prevailing culture because it sounds weird and maybe even insulting to us right now, even as people within the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 is in fact, I would call the very definition, the very definition of a hard passage. Now let's just take church, uh, let's just take for granted uh, the part where Paul says women should, not, should dress modestly and not as an exercise in conspicuous consumption or to inflame lust. Let's just take that as a granted. If we can't take that as a granted, we've got a lot more foundation to lay that I can't do this morning. No, no, the real problem in this passage comes, it begins here in verse 11. 
And now listen, listen to what he says. Oh, that mean old Pharisee Paul. Listen to him. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. (laughs) For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Hallelujah. Now, (laughs) that's a tough passage. What are we going to do with that? Well, one of the ways this passage most generally gets handled is we just don't talk about it. We ignore it into oblivion. It's like, la, 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 la. It's not going to come in the, it's not in the lectionary, believe me. We're not in the lectionary right now. It's offensive to our modern sensibilities, and quite frankly, it's a little, you know, we're a lot embarrassed by it. And it seems to reinforce the conventional secular wisdom that Christianity is inherently misogynistic, and it may, in fact, be the historical root of the dreaded war on women. So one way we could handle it is just pretend that it isn't there at all. But for, tra- but for traditional Christians, this really isn't an option for us because we believe that this is a part of God's authoritative self-revelation. If we are going to be faithful to the whole text, the whole canon of Scripture, we can't ignore this text. And if we don't avoid or ignore this text altogether, there's another way we're often tempted to deal with the passage we just read. It goes along the lines of what Mike Higton and Rachel Muir's point out in their book, Keeping the Text in Play. Uh, they're British, so they talk a little funny. I'm not going to do the accents, don't worry. It says this, It is worth noting that there are in contemporary Christian interpretations of this passage, the second, uh, 1 Timothy 2 passage, various neutralizing strategies. <laughs> yeah, let's neutralize this thing. That seek rather directly to cut the lines between a straightforward reading of this text and a direct contemporary obedience to the teaching. For instance, one may point out the contextual specificity of this ruling. In other words, it belongs to a specific culture, a specific moment in time now long past. Or one may seek somehow for the spirit of this ruling beyond the letter, saying, for instance, oh, that it is really about the need for the church, where possible, to so order its life as not to cause unnecessary offense to the surrounding culture and that we need to find the appropriate application of that deeper principle in our own time. Well, brothers and sisters, this, uh, uh, this strategy of neutralizing the offensiveness of this text is that we may start doing this. In fact, we do start doing this to every uncomfortable passage of Scripture. And before you know it, we have excused ourselves from every text of Scripture that would call us to live differently from the secular culture around us. So this morning, I want to encourage us to have the courage to try to work through this passage in a way that keeps us under the authority of Holy Scripture and yet seeks the real understanding of the text. And in order to do that, we have to first understand what this text is. Thomas Oden, uh, one of my favorite theologians, one of my favorite Bible commentators, says this uh, regarding that passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2. In this passage, we are still speaking of proper instruction for public worship. 
The general subject is public prayer. I would that men everywhere would lift up hands, uh, holy hands in prayer without arguing and quarreling, without anger and quarreling. So the general subject is public prayer discussed in, the, in terms of the two genders, male and female. So hear me. This passage instru- is instructing Timothy on how he is to order the worship life and the teaching life of the church in the great city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It's a city. It's a beautiful location. It was not a city anymore, but it was a huge and important cosmopolitan center in Asia Minor in the first century. And so the very first thing, since this is a text, listen, about about Christian worship, what does it tell us? The first thing about Christian worship it tells us is that women are permitted to be learners. Let a woman learn. See, that statement indicates that Paul is encouraging Timothy, listen, to go against the grain of the Jewish and Hellenistic society of his time by allowing women to be learners just like men. In first century Judaism, women were not allowed to read the Torah. And they certainly, when it comes to temple worship in the second temple period, they were confined to the outer court of the temple. There was the court of the Israelites, the most innermost court where Jewish men alone could go. The next court out was the court of the women, and women couldn't go into the court of the Israelites. And outside the court of the women was the court of the Gentiles. And Greek women were even more limited in their access to public learning than Jewish women. But now, women in the Christian community, just like men, are allowed to be learners. And learning quietly, listen, and then we hear this, oh, they are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Ooh. Ooh. No, folks, if we go and read, we, we can read it in First and Second Thessalonians 2, that Paul gives that admonition to the whole church, not just to women. In other words, Paul says women are to learn with the same disposition before the authority of Scripture that men learn before the authority of Scripture, and that is in quietness with full submission. I'm sorry, guys, you have to submit to Scripture too. So it's not distinguishing women Apart from what is required of men, this is exactly what what is required of men. When we come before the teaching of the law, when we come before the teaching of the gospel, we are to stand in submission to that authority and with quiet spirits receive the pure teaching of God's word. So there's nothing singular, and there certainly isn't anything singularly offensive about that. The attitude of submission is not just for women, it is for men too as we learn. And so we all just breathe a sigh of relief. But then it gets worse. I do not permit a woman to teach. It's how you read it, you see. Or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. <laughs> all right, when we were talking about that, we knew this text was coming up in, in the rotation as we preached. We were preaching through First Timothy. And I said, oh, yes. I get to preach the shut up woman sermon. (laughs) We didn't mean it like that. Because that's how people hear this. What are we to make of that text? Well, first of all, what we cannot do, listen, we cannot do this. We cannot absolutize, that's a word I invented, I know because my spell checker doesn't recognize it. We cannot absolutize the text and say, all right, women are not allowed to teach. Because in the uh, very, the third of these three pastoral epistles, the little letter to Titus, Paul specifically instructs that women should be teaching. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers or slaves to much wine. We can all agree on that. And then Paul says they are to teach. They are to teach what is good. And to train young women to love their husbands and children. Yes, okay, we admit it. We do think women should love their husbands and children. We're guilty as charged. But Paul clearly says that women are to teach. And we also know from Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, served as a teacher even of the learned Apollos, as Thomas Oden mentions as well. Acts chapter 18, verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And as far as remaining quiet in the church goes, we also cannot absolutize that point either because Paul himself gives instructions for how women are to publicly pray and prophesy in the church in 1 Corinthians 11. So public prayer and prophecy are both actions that necessarily require one not to be quiet. So the issue here seems to be how women exercise authority how they exercise teaching authority. And here the text itself is very helpful. The phrase exercise authority in that longer clause, exercise authority over a man, is based on a Greek word that is found one place in all of the New Testament, and it is found here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not allow a woman to exercise authority. So if we're going to understand that word, we have to go to a text outside of the canon of Scripture. And other Greek texts seem to indicate that the meaning here means to usurp authority. Listen, it means to usurp authority or to domineer and dominate. And the reason that this was a problem for the church in Ephesus is that that city was home to the great temple of Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. The goddess Artemis was served by an all-female priesthood, and men were excluded from its core practices. So Paul is telling Timothy to remind women in worship that this is not like the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. They are worshipers and learners alongside of men in the Christian community. They do not dominate the Christian community as the worship of Artemis does. And I hope that makes sense. It makes sense to me. But if you want to know the key that unlocks the reading of this whole passage, it comes in the strangest verse of all. And I'm, we are, warning, 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 we are about to enter a theology-rich zone. If I had a little yellow, amber, flashing light, it would be going off right now. Listen to what the passage says. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The woman is saved in childbearing? What in the world is this talking about? I thought we got saved through Jesus. <laughs> How do you get saved through childbearing? Where in all of Scripture could we possibly find a woman being saved through childbearing? Where could we find such a crazy thing? For those of you listening on the podcast, <laughs> there's a giant icon of the Blessed Virgin Mary with Jesus. It's revealed in her womb here. That's right. Those who read this passage through the lens of the great tradition, in other words, what Christians have believed always, everywhere, and by all, see this passage through the lens of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
Now, when I say the Blessed Virgin Mary, some people, some of us just automatically tense up. All of our inner parts just tighten up. But you see, we call her the Blessed Virgin Mary because she said, from this day forward, all people will call me blessed. It's in the Bible. We call her virgin because we believe in the virgin birth. We call her Mary because that's her name. So, Blessed Virgin Mary is not a curse word. It's not just some weird Catholic thing people say. And so the early church and those that are still in the great tradition read this passage through the lens of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She herself is saved through childbearing because she herself gives birth to the Savior. One of the reasons that we as conservative evangelicals sometimes uh, sideline and diminish women is because we dumped the mama out with the baby's bathwater. We have refused to delve into God's call of the woman Mary in the restoration of the human race. And so the passage from Luke 1 we just read clearly demonstrates God's exalted place for women in his plan of salvation. Listen, the phrase Gabriel uses to greet Mary with, the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you, is used only once in the New Testament And it is used here only for Mary. The the phrase, the Lord be with you, is used only once in the New Testament. And it is used for the Blessed Virgin Mary. The blessed little boy, Luke Samuel. (laughs) That phrase, though, the Lord be with you, although it's used only here in the New Testament, has a long tradition in the Old Testament. And it points to receiving a call. Listen, it points to receiving a call from God and being supernaturally empowered by God. It is the phrase uttered to people who are key players in salvation history. Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12, the Lord be with you. Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord be with you. Angel greets him. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, verse 8, the Lord be with you. Right away, therefore, we know that Mary is a key player in God's salvation history. Mary responds to the angel. We heard this, uh, read this morning as Stephen read it for us. Mary responds to the angel that she is the Lord's servant. This is the same title that the prophets of the Old Testament embraced, the servant of the Lord. What does that tell us? Listen, brothers and sisters, we got to read the whole Bible. You can't have the Thomas Jefferson Bible. I'm sorry. He's the one that took a pair of scissors and cuts out the bits that he didn't like. We don't have the Thomas Jefferson version We've got the version that the church has handed down to us. And so, what do we hear from this? We hear that Mary is greeted as a prophet. And she is. Mary is a prophet, and her oracle is the word of God made flesh. Prophets bring forth God's word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Early Christians equated the role of Mary with that of the Bible itself. She is the page on which the pure word of God is written. Did you know that's what they thought about her? So Mary, from the text we read in Luke chapter 1, is called, ordained. And set apart to a unique office here, listen, because I am a raging complementarianist or something like that. (laughs) I believe in the complementarian quality of men and women in the church as opposed to an egalitarian. That's a whole other sermon I should have brought it up. (laughs) 
But listen, she has a unique office. Mary is called, ordained, and set apart to a unique office that no man can hold. No man can do what she was called to do. And since the word made flesh came through her, then by definition she is the ultimate human minister of divine grace because through her calling and obedience, the Savior of the world comes into the world. Early Christians also saw and read, and they read it this way because Luke is very careful to make us see this. Oh, by the way, who was Luke's traveling companion? Oh, that would be Paul, the guy that wrote the passage we just read, yes. They saw Mary as the new Eve. Where does that work? What is all that stuff about Adam and Eve doing in two, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Well, early Christians saw Mary as the new Eve. Now, I want us to notice something here. The passage from Luke is almost a point-by-point reversal of the fall that is narrated in Genesis chapter 3. You know, the talking snake in the Garden of Eden passage, right? We didn't read that this morning. I'm depending on your, your uh, knowledge of Scripture, but let me refresh your memory here. In the garden, Eve is approached by a fallen angel. In Luke chapter 1, Mary is greeted by the holy angel Gabriel. Hmm. In the garden, Eve believes the serpent's lies, and she chooses her own will. In Luke chapter 1, Mary believes the good news brought by Gabriel and chooses God's will. In the garden, Eve's disobedience leads her to flee from the presence of God. Mary's obedience causes her to be overshadowed by the presence of God. Now listen, and when it says the glory of God will overshadow you, that's, you know where that comes up? It doesn't come up anywhere else. It comes up in the Old Testament, and it comes up under this title. When God's Spirit overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, that is the exact same phrase. And the Spirit of God, the power of God will overshadow you. And so Mary, far from fleeing from God's presence, is overshadowed by the presence of God as when God filled the holies of holies. Eve's rebellion gave birth to death and the curse, but Mary's obedience defeated the curse and gave birth to the conqueror of death. This is not a mistake. This is not a coincidence. This is Luke telling us something and how he recounts this. This is the Holy Spirit teaching us. Eve's disobedience began the destruction of the old creation. Mary's obedience is the beginning of a new creation. So what are the implications of all this? Brothers and sisters, Eve was the archetype of fallen womanhood. Mary is the archetype of redeemed womanhood. And as such, she directly speaks to the vexing question of women in ministry. Throughout the worldwide 80 million member Anglican communion, this is a topic of ongoing theological debate. How do we deal with the New Testament's clear teaching regarding male headship in the church? Because it does clearly teach male headship in the church and male headship headship in the home. And that's strange to an egalitarian Western society, we know, and we make no apologies for that. We really do believe in male headship. 
But without the witness of Mary, we either torture the Bible. Listen, and I've seen this. This is what happens to folks who don't want, don't want to have Mary in their Bible. We do a couple of things. Without the witness of Mary, we either torture the Bible into fitting our egalitarian agenda in which there is no difference in roles for men and women in ministry, or we act as if there essentially no role for women at all unless maybe it's children's ministry and on the mission field. But if we allow Mary back into the canon of Scripture, if we as Protestants will get over our Mariophobia, if we heed the voice of the most earliest or the, of the earliest church, then certain truths become undeniable. Truth number one, God exalts the woman who offers herself in sacrificial obedience. Speaking of herself, Mary says that God has exalted those of humble estate. Mary reveals that God uses and blesses the woman who submits, God, submits to God's word in her life. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be, be done unto me according to your word. And Elizabeth says of Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary shows us that God employs women for called, set-apart ministry. No, it's not headship ministry. She was not the head of the apostles or the head of the church. But her ministry is not diminished because of that. Her ministry is not of lesser worth than that. Indeed, Mary's ministry is the most important ministry ever offered by any human person other than that of her son. You can't get Jesus without Mary. That's how he got here. And that still deeply bothers my inner Protestant. <laughs> Her ministry is essential and complementary to the priestly, minister of Christ, priestly ministry of Christ. Mary's ministry is essential and complementary of the ministry of Christ because it's Mary's little lamb that is slain to take away the sins of the world. God raised woman, the first to fall, in his great grace and wisdom to the highest and most revered place of all humanity in the person of Mary. Apart from the supreme ministry of Christ himself, God called Mary to the most important, most exalted ministry ever performed by a human being. And here's the clincher. This most exalted ministry was not a ministry of headship. Bizarre. And by the way, the church now reads itself in the person of Mary so that she becomes the model disciple in her humility, in her accept. She is the very first person ever. Listen, Mary is the first person to ever accept Jesus Christ into her life by faith. She is the first evangelical Christian. Two prayers for the church seem to arise from all of this. First of all, that God would cut off and uproot the unbiblical misogyny that has made its way into evangelical Christianity. Secondly, that God would reignite our biblical imaginations to see how women called and set apart like Mary can robustly minister in God's church. And I think we see it here at Christ Church. Because Mary reveals the shocking biblical truth. God exalts woman. God entrusts woman with the destiny of the entire human race, our destiny rested on the decision 
of a teenage Jewish girl. The reason that so many Protestants don't know how to deal with the role of women in the church is because they have ignored the critical role Mary played in salvation history and the way God has exalted all women through her. In the Old Testament, women were not allowed into the Holy of Holies, let alone into the court of the Israelites. They weren't allowed there because that's where the presence of God was. But in the New Covenant, God's presence resides in a woman first, and she becomes the Holy of Holies. Thanks be to God that as we read all of God's Word in its entirety, that he corrects the things that need to be reformed in the church. Doesn't lead us down a road of secular egalitarianism, but he also doesn't lead us down a road of misogyny. May God's word richly guide us now as we move forward in Christ in this church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.